But when we reached the end of the series on the life of Jesus, I just thought, man, I would love to do a message on, on the evidence for the resurrection. And then I stopped and I took a step back and as I started digging into that, I realized, you know, that there's one problem when it comes to evidence for the resurrection. Most of the source material that we point to when it comes to the resurrection is in the Bible. And I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone who's not a believer or, or been around that much online, but one of the favorite accusations of people who don't believe in the Bible is they're saying, you're, you're using circular reasoning. You're using the Bible to explain why the Bible is true. Have you ever seen this where somebody says to a Christian, well, how do you know the Bible is true? And you say, well, the word of God says every word is true. It's like, no, no, I asked you how you knew the Bible was true. You see, you can't use the Bible to explain why the Bible is true. That's circular reasoning. It doesn't work out. So if we're going to explain to someone why they can believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have a responsibility to first be able to prove why the gospel accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus are true and reliable. Why should we trust the Gospels? That's a really, really important question. And so we're going to spend a few weeks jumping into this. It's very different to anything we've done before, but I wanted to equip us to be able to answer the question, why should I believe what the Bible says about Jesus? In our small group, when we were looking at these sort of issues, a great observation was raised, which is if someone says to you, why are you a Christian? Almost all of us would answer with some type of subjective experience as our explanation. Here's what that means. It would be an experience that we had personally, something like, well, he spoke to me. He revealed himself to me. He showed himself to me in a way that I just knew he was true. And that reason is good enough for you. It's good enough for me. But here's the problem when a person is asking a question about truth. When the person says as a follow-up question, but how do you know that's true? What do you say then? Because the problem, whether we want to realize it or not, is that there are many people of many other faiths who can provide subjective experiences as their reason for belief. The Buddhist, the Muslim, the Hindu can also say, well, I had an experience where I just felt fill in the blank. And we don't ever want to be in the place where the reasons for our faith look identical to the reasons that everybody else has for their false beliefs. And so the burden is not on us only to know why we believe what we believe, but to know why we should believe it's true. So if someone says to you, why are you a Christian? You can share your story. You can share what the Lord has done for you. That's great. But you want to be able to follow it up with, and here's why I know that it's true. We talked last week about how people in the, the first sort of wave of the church were able to give really good answers like, I saw the resurrected Jesus. That's really all they needed to know. Or to be able to say, I've talked to dozens of people who saw him firsthand. But as time has gone on, the reasons and explanations we need to be ready to give have changed. And so that's what we're going to begin doing tonight, looking into the question, why should we believe in the Gospels? Because the whole of Christianity hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. And even the Bible says it. In 1 Corinthians 15.4, the Apostle Paul writes, if Christ, that's Jesus, is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. 
So the Bible itself says, if you want to know why Christianity is true, look at the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, that authenticates everything. If he didn't, then you can disregard everything because it's all a lie. So the test is the resurrection of Jesus. And if you want to examine that, the first thing you need to know is, why should I believe the gospel accounts about Jesus? Now, I'm going to do my best as a Christian to use concrete, historical, rational, logical evidence in this presentation. And if you're a believer, if you're a non-believer who happens to be listening to this online one day, I'm just gonna ask all of us to have an open, critical mind as we go into this, even though we all have our own biases. In this investigation, we're going to be using a book for most of my material by Mark D. Roberts that was written in 2007. It's titled, Can We Trust the Gospels? It's written at the top of your outline. And I'll tell you why. This area of research, which is called text criticism of the Gospels, is a real academic specialty. Men and women spend years, decades, gaining the skill and knowledge to evaluate and investigate this issue. So the idea that in one week of preparation, I could speak authoritatively on the subject would be quite frankly ridiculous. Now that doesn't stop many pastors from doing just that and keeping the illusion alive. But I wanna be upfront with you about how I'm putting this series together because that, that happened, it was actually Wes. Wes went to a church and there was this great series getting a lot of buzz about marriage and Wes started listening to it and then he came back and he said, you know they're just teaching Tim Keller's book on marriage in order, chapter by chapter, and taking credit for it. And I couldn't decide if I was outraged or jealous that I hadn't had the idea first. But, but anyway, I wanted to be very, very upfront about what we're doing here because my heart as a pastor is to get us the very best information possible. That's the goal. I didn't want to stand up here and be like, everything I'm telling you is, is unverified and I could be totally wrong on some of these things, but it's original work. I want you guys to know that. I wanted to get you the very best information we could. So when we're done this series, if you want to read more about it, um, you can go and pick up his book. We're indebted to him for his research. And I also wanted you to know that because, you know, should you ever meet him in life, I don't want you to be like, you're the guy that stole all the material from my pastor's series about the Gospels. So, so have you ever heard this objection? The New Testament that exists today is nothing like the original. It's been hopelessly corrupted and changed over the centuries. It's a very well-known accusation against the scriptures. We need to tackle that issue first because after all, what's the point in analyzing the contents of the gospels we have today if they're completely different from the originals when they were written? So let's get into this. We're gonna tackle an easy objection first. Some critics will say, well, the Bible has over 1,500 translations. So how can you possibly claim that it's not corrupted? when it's been translated 1,500 times. This is very, very simple and very easily answered. Those translations are not a chain. You see, it's not like the Bible was translated into English, then into French, then into Spanish, and then into Swahili. That's not what happened. All Bible translations are made from the same foundational texts. These texts are known as critical texts and they are in the original languages. These are the versions of the scriptures 
that the experts have come up with in the original languages using all the research, everything they know and found, this is the foundational text. The Old Testament is in the original Hebrew and Aramaic, while the New Testament is in the original Greek. And any time a translation is made, it's made straight from those original critical texts. So make a note of this. All Bible translations are rendered from the same critical texts in the original languages, Hebrew and Aramaic for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. That's important because whatever the language, it's only one degree away from the critical text. The four gospels were all written in the second half of the first century AD, somewhere between 50 AD and 100 AD on scrolls made of papyrus. Papyrus was cheap and readily available, but it wasn't very durable, which is why it's unlikely that any of the original gospel manuscripts exist today. They could have been worn out, they could have been lost by early church pastors. It's a hilarious but possible thought. Where did I put that original copy of the Gospel of John? I'm sure it's not important. They could have been uh, destroyed by enemies of the early church. Don't forget that for most of the first three centuries, being a Christian was illegal in the Roman Empire. And so if you were driven out of your town, they were burning Christian books. It was illegal to have copies of the scriptures for much of the first three centuries. Or they could have even been eaten by small animals like rats. Now because these ancient papyrus documents were notoriously fragile, a solution was found. That solution was copying. Professional copyists were known as scribes and they were trained to make copies with maximum accuracy and minimal errors. And if the person hiring them had enough cash, they would make those copies on parchment, which was a much more durable material made out of animal skins. These scribes worked much, much faster than you would expect. This was like an old school staples kind of operation and they would just churn these things out and sometimes they would make small corrections to the text to fix what they thought were spelling errors. And despite their training, they're still humans so tiny mistakes could happen. So if we had an original handwritten by a gospel author copy of a gospel manuscript, it would contain some small variations from the earliest copies that we still have in existence today. By the way, an original copy, and I'm gonna use this term for the rest of the message, an original version of one of the Gospels would be known as an autograph, an autograph. Many of the Gospel copies were not made by professional scribes, but ordinary lay people who managed to get the skills of a copyist. This may be because, again, Christianity was illegal in most of the Roman Empire, so you couldn't always just go down to your local copyist and be like, hey, can you make this copy of this illegal text and risk your life by doing that for me? So you couldn't do that. You also might not have had the money. Many Christians were poor under vicious persecution, and so they would have to find the best person they could to make copies to get that spread out across the empire. So, if we have no gospel autographs, and the earliest copies we have have come to us through the imperfect process of copying, how do we know that the copies we have haven't been hopelessly corrupted? This is the question we're gonna dive into. And there's four factors we're gonna expand on to understand this. Firstly, the age of the manuscripts we have. We're gonna look at the age of the manuscripts we have. Very simply, the older they are, the better. Why? Because the older they are, the closer they are to the originals. Secondly, we're gonna look at the number of manuscripts that we have. Again, the more, the better. Why? Because the bigger the sample size, 
the easier it is to identify anomalies and errors. Thirdly, we're gonna look at the methodology of the textual criticism. And I know we're expanding our vocabulary tonight, but I promise these are the easiest to understand terms I could come up with. What I mean by the methodology of the textual criticism is what are the methods that the experts and the scholars are using when they study and analyze these texts? Are they biased? Are they solid methodologies or not? Fourthly, we're gonna look at the degree of variation between the manuscripts we have. So if we look at these earliest manuscripts and we find variations that are all over the place, like, like in one copy, the disciples of Jesus have different names to another copy, then we got some really big problems on our hands. So number one, let's look at the age of the manuscripts. The oldest manuscript of the Gospels in existence today is a papyrus fragment that's known by the name P52, the P stands for papyrus, of the Gospel of John. And this is actually on your outline already. It's been dated to around AD 125. We know that it's a copy. And so that means that it was made within a couple of generations of John's original writing. The next oldest manuscripts of the Gospel come from the latter part, the back half of the second century, somewhere between 150 and 200 AD, and the early part of the third century. These include significant portions of all four of the Gospels. Another word to add to our vocabulary right now is the word extant, extant. Extant, and I put it on your outline as well, simply means in existence today. So I'm gonna talk about extant manuscripts. That just means manuscripts that we actually have in our possession today. Now as we move further into the third century and beyond, we find many extant manuscripts, including one of the most important parchment copies of the entire Bible that's known as Codex Sinaiticus. It was found in the mid-19th century. The story of this is unbelievable if you ever wanna look into it. It was found in the mid-19th century, not in a revered position or anything, just in a 19th century monastery and it dated all the way back to the fourth century AD. It contained the whole New Testament along with major sections of the Old Testament in Greek. So the smallest time gap we have is the gap between that P52 fragment from the Gospel of John and the autograph of John's Gospel. Not only because that, that parchment is the oldest one that we have, but because John's Gospel is widely considered to be the last Gospel to be written. It's a gap of just two generations. And the more complete manuscripts date to about a century after their autographs with extant copies of the whole New Testament dating to over two centuries after their autographs. So from our point of view, if you're still with me, you'll hear some of those time gaps and you'll think that seems like a really, really long time. And it can make you a little bit nervous about the reliability of the Gospels. But if we compare the time gap between the Gospel autographs and the extant manuscripts to other writings from the time that historians and scholars accept as reliable, we're gonna find that the evidence is much, much better than we think. For example, consider the writings of three historians who lived around the same time as the gospel writers. The Jewish historian Josephus and the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius. The oldest extant manuscripts of Tacitus and Suetonius come from the ninth century. Those of Josephus date back only to the 11th 
century. We're talking about a time gap of somewhere between 800 to 1,000 years between the autographs and the extant manuscripts, yet historians accept those manuscripts as basically reliable representations of what was in the originals. And just in case you think I'm cherry-picking my examples, the oldest manuscripts of the classical historians Herodotus and Thucydides are separated from their autographs by about 500 years. What does that mean? It means this. If someone were to claim that we can't have confidence in the original content of the Gospels because the existing manuscripts are too far removed from their originals, then that person would also have to cast doubt upon our knowledge of almost all ancient history and literature. Because all ancient history and literature is based on time gaps that are far greater than the gaps between the gospel autographs and the extant manuscripts. The world's foremost classical scholars and historians do not share that sort of skepticism and they would consider it to be completely unwarranted. When it comes to the age of the New Testament manuscripts we have, the evidence is quite simply outstanding. So do write this down. The extant gospel manuscripts are hundreds of years, centuries closer to their autographs than those of Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius, Herodotus, and Thucydides. And if you study classical history, those names of those five historians will come up all the time. They're five of the most prominent that we have. The gospel manuscripts are centuries closer to their originals than those. So secondly, we're gonna look at the number of manuscripts that we have. So let's do this by sharing the number of extant manuscripts we have of those same five classical historians we mentioned earlier, who, by the way, again, historians consider to be extremely reliable. The histories of Tacitus exist today in three manuscripts, none of which contain all his writings. We're better off in the case of Suetonius, whose writings are found in more than 200 extant manuscripts. For Josephus, we have 133, and there are 75 manuscripts of Herodotus and 20 of Thucydides. As of 2007, scholars were aware of more than 2,000 manuscripts that contain all or some portion of the biblical gospel text. And that's out of 5,700 manuscripts that contain some portion of the New Testament. And the total is growing slowly all the time as new manuscripts are discovered. So write this down. The number of gospel manuscripts in existence is about 20 times larger than the average number of extant manuscripts of comparable writings. So other writings from history that historians consider to be reliable, on average, there are about 20 times more gospel extant manuscripts. And I haven't even mentioned in that number the tens of thousands of manuscripts of gospel portions that date back to the earliest centuries AD in other languages like Latin and Syriac. I also haven't even mentioned the hundreds and thousands of quotations from the Gospels that are found in writings of the early church leaders, things like letters and commentaries. If we added that, the amount of evidence would simply be too much to get through in one conversation. 
Now, Bruce Metzger was one of the most prominent liberal Bible scholars of the modern age. And Bart Ehrman is a worldwide leader in attempting to classify Jesus as real and historical, but not divine. So his whole mission is to prove that Jesus was real, he was historical, but he was not God. And here's what those two men have to say about all the quotes from the New Testament that are used by early church leaders in manuscripts we have today. So we're not talking about gospel texts, we're talking about the early church leaders who wrote letters and commentaries and quoted from the gospels. This is what they have to say just about those quotations. Besides textual evidence derived from the New Testament Greek manuscripts and from early versions, the textual critic has available the numerous scriptural quotations included in the commentary, sermons, and other treatises written by early church fathers. Indeed, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament text. What he's saying is if we lost every extant manuscript of the New Testament text that we have today, if it all disappeared overnight and we just had to use quotations from that text that are in letters from the early church fathers, we could reconstruct the entire text again. That's how much evidence there is. After comparing the extant manuscripts of the New Testament with those for other ancient literature, Metzger and Ehrman conclude that, quote, the textual critic of the New Testament is embarrassed by the wealth of material. There's so much, so many manuscripts that we have today, it's literally embarrassing. That's how many there are. It's a lot. Thirdly, let's look at the methodology of textual criticism. So the question is this, how does a text critic sort through this wealth of historical evidence to determine which is the oldest, closest to the original form of the gospel text? What they do first is they collect all of the known earliest manuscripts, including ancient translations and writings of the early church fathers. So you've got a parchment, it's got say part of the Gospel of John, the first thing you're gonna do is you're gonna collect, probably not the originals, but copies and all the research that's already been done on other manuscripts that contain that part of the Gospel text. So the first thing you're gonna do is look at everything that's known about the dating and the variations that have already been found in copies of that text. This is important because the individual text critic has to rely on the work of hundreds of other scholars, both present and past, which makes it impossible for a text critic to go rogue and put out false information as fact or a new discovery without it being quickly discovered and determined by the rest of the scholastic community to be shoddy work. So there's no way a guy can just find something, lie about it, write conclusions, publish it, and spread false rumors. It doesn't work because the text critic community is that tight-knit and is that dependent on one another. Second, once they've collected all of the information about the text they're analyzing, they begin to evaluate it using variants differences in the text, things that are out of place to determine its age. Here's how it works. It can be kind of like the old game of broken telephone. If we have all of us standing in a line and I give one message to the person at the beginning and they each whisper it into the ear of the next person, it's not gonna be the same message by the time it gets to the end. 
But what you can do is if I were able to ask each person and I said, wait a minute, you're the fourth person in the line, what was the message you heard? And then you share it with me and I know what the original message was. I can tell, okay, this word got introduced into the message at the fourth step. So therefore, if I find any part of that message that contains that error, and I know for sure the date of that error, I know that you were positioned after number four in the chain. So this is what they do with the gospel. Sometimes they find copies that they're able to date to an exact year because maybe it's got a date stamped on it or something like that. And so they can look at that copy and they can see, oh, wait a minute, this little mistake is in here. And this is the first time we've seen this mistake. So now what they know is that everything that comes after that, that contains that mistake, comes after the specific date that one was written. Because maybe they have another copy and that mistake isn't in there, and that copy's earlier. So by using this method, what they can do when they know when a mistake was introduced into the text, they can know that this manuscript is at least this old. It can't be any younger than this because it's got this mistake in it, and we know this mistake was introduced in 175 AD. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? So that's the method they will use to date it. And although there's always room for human error in anything, text criticism is far and away the most objective discipline in New Testament studies. If you were to take two completely different teams of test critics and have them work independently on a critical edition of the Greek New Testament, they would agree more than 99% of the time because it's such an objective field of study. And in fact, for the vast majority of words in the Gospels, text critics have an extremely high level of confidence concerning what was in the original Gospel autographs. This is not a field where there's one camp who thinks it was something different to this other camp. They agree all text critics do on 99% of the content that was in the original Gospels. So write this down. Text criticism is an objective, peer-reviewed discipline that relies on the collective work of hundreds of scholars. Hundreds of scholars. I'm thinking of the old Brian Regan joke where it's like, it's not a subjective field of study where like a guy shows up and he's like, I figured out what the whales are saying. Because how are you gonna argue with that guy, right? <laughs> There's no way to do that. It's a very, very subjective field if you're studying what you think the whales are saying. But text criticism is a very objective discipline. Lastly, we're gonna look at the degree of variation between the manuscripts that we have. So skeptics who try to cast doubt on the reliability of the extant New Testament manuscripts love to point to the apparently huge number of variants they contain. For example, Bart Ehrman in his book, Misquoting Jesus, suggests that there are 200,000 to 400,000 variants among the extant New Testament manuscripts. And he adds dramatically, quote, there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. That sounds pretty ominous, right? Like somebody says it in a conversation with you, you're like, oh, okay. But the reality is that the data gives us no reason to doubt the reliability of the manuscripts. Let me explain why. We have such a large number of variants because there are so many extant gospel manuscripts. Considering that the four gospels contain a total of 64,000 words, and we have over 2,000 manuscripts of the gospels, 
That's a lot of potential variants. But as we've already shown, having many manuscripts actually increases the likelihood of our getting back to the original text because it makes it much easier for us to spot anomalies. How do we know this is a mistake? Because this appears in only 1% of the 2,000 manuscripts we have. Therefore, we know that it's an error. That can sound negative to somebody who's not familiar with how the field works. It can sound intimidating to hear that there are so many variants, but when you understand the math, you'll realize it's really a good thing. I'll give a hypothetical example to make this clearer. So the book I'm using is my primary source for this message series, Can We Trust the Gospels by Mark D. Roberts, contains 50,000 words. Let's say I ask two of you to handwrite a copy or, or type out a copy of the book for me. And suppose you, you do a really, really good job in fact, you only make one mistake, one typo, one character, one punctuation mark. You only get one of those wrong every 1,000 words. You are 99%, actually 99.9% .9 accurate in your work. 99.9% .9 accurate in your work. When you were finished, your manuscript would have 50 variations in it. And if there were two of you doing it, we now have 100 variations. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? But suppose I asked 2,000 people to make a copy of that book. And they, too, all do a great job. They're all 99.9% .9 accurate, only making one mistake every 1,000 words. When they were finished, the number of variants we would have between those 2,000 copies would be 100,000. It sounds like a lot of variance, more variance than words in the book, as Bart Ehrman would say. But in fact, the large number of variants is a simple byproduct of the large number of manuscripts that we have. And remember, if text critics were trying to figure out what the original copy of the book said, say we have these 2,000 copies and I wanna know well, what did the original book that Mark D. Roberts wrote actually say? text critics would be in a much stronger position to figure that out with 2,000 manuscripts than they would with two, even though the number of variants is far, far greater. So the fact that, quote, there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament is not surprising or bad news. It's a reflection of the wealth of manuscript evidence available to us. The actual number of variants represents a tiny percentage of the variants that could have occurred among the manuscripts. Additionally, the vast majority of variants in the New Testament manuscripts are insignificant. Why? Because either they appear so rarely that they're obviously not original, they're easy to identify, or they don't appear in the older manuscripts, so we can tell right away that they're mistakes or they don't impact the meaning of the text at all. We're talking about a dot missing on top of an I or some part of punctuation that doesn't matter at all. In fact, the majority of variants, not the majority of the text, the majority of variants, just the variants that show up in enough older manuscripts to impact our reading of the text are just that. They're spelling mistakes or punctuation errors. That's it. There's a text critic named Daniel Wallace who concludes that, quote, only about 1% of the variants make any substantive difference. Not 1% of the text, 1% of the variants. And none of these variants affect Christian theology in any way. 
None of them affect our theology and our core beliefs in any way. If you actually took out every word from the Gospels that text critics are a little bit uncertain about, it would have absolutely no impact on our understanding of who Jesus was, what he did, or what he taught. For example, we'll take a quick look at the two most obvious and significant textual variants in the Gospels. And I wanna point this out too. Anytime there's uncertainty about even a word in the Bible, you might have noticed this, your Bible will actually tell you that. It's completely upfront. If you see a word that's italicized, then it means that word is not in the oldest gospel manuscripts and they added that word because they thought they needed to in order to make the sentence make sense. But your Bible will tell you that by italicizing the word and putting a note on the bottom. And there's two sections in the New Testament that are in parentheses, they're in brackets because there's some debate among scholars as to whether these were added later or not. But again, your Bible will tell you that and be completely upfront about it. The first story appears in John 7 and 8. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. And if you look in your Bible, it's probably gonna be in brackets adding a note that says something like the earliest gospel manuscripts do not contain this passage. It's likely that story is true, but many scholars believe it was added later after John finished his gospel. Personally, I don't believe that, but that's not the point of today's message. Similarly, the other famous part is the ending of the Gospel of Mark. You'll find that bracketed in your Bibles too because some scholars believe that the oldest manuscripts didn't contain the ending of Mark. That's also not true for reasons I can't get into right now, but I just want to be upfront. Those are the two examples we're talking about, and you can read through two of those, and if you pulled those out of your Bible, it doesn't change anything doesn't change anything. There's no theological concept in there that we would now have to get rid of in our belief system, even if those were missing from the Bible completely. Write this down. The many variants in the extant gospel manuscripts are the simple product of the incredible number of manuscripts we have, which also allows scholars to more easily identify variants. No, again, there's a lot of complicated words in there, but I really hope you're encouraged by this, the huge number of variants. When people talk about all the differences in the original manuscripts, that's a good thing because it's the result of the incredible number of manuscripts that we have, and it makes it so much easier for text critics to figure out what the purest form of the gospel text was. The bottom line is this, we can know what the original gospel manuscript said. We can have confidence that the Greek texts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that are used as the critical source for all gospel translations represent with a very high degree of probability what the original gospels said. Having determined that, hang with me, you guys are doing so good. The next question becomes, well, did the writers of the Gospels actually know Jesus personally? You might be aware the traditional view among Christians is that Matthew and John's Gospels were written by the disciples of the same name. Mark is generally held to be a biography of Peter's recollections of his time with Jesus. And Luke is a historical biography compiled by a physician who was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul who thoroughly researched the life and ministry of Jesus by speaking with many eyewitnesses. The short summary is this. We have excellent evidence from non-biblical sources as far back as AD 130 that these four books were considered by the church to be the four authoritative gospels. This should be on your outline as well. They're mentioned by name by Irenaeus, 
in AD 180. In AD 180, Irenaeus, who's an early church leader, wrote a document called Against Heresies uh, to tackle the subject of things that he felt were heretical in the church. In that text, he mentions Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John by name as the four gospels that the early church held to be true. And if you haven't figured it out yet, the reason that's important is because there were actually a lot more gospels than that floating around. Two to three dozen more, in fact, written by many of them, a group known as Gnostics, who did not believe that Jesus was God, but believed in special secret revelation that only they could receive as God's representatives. So what they did to try and undermine Christianity is they wrote all of these false gospels, used the names of famous people like the 12 disciples or Mary, and then called their work the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary. And then they spread this rumor to to help them get traction. They would say, did you know there's a secret gospel that the church doesn't want you to know about? It's called the Gospel of Thomas, and you should read it. And it was full of their false ideas and a false gospel. This was disproved and dealt with by the early church in the second and third centuries. They were telling each other, these works are fake. The four real gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Don't worry with any of these Gnostic gospels. Here's the incredible thing. That was dealt with in the second and third century. Those rumors have legs. In fact, they're so persistent, they came up in our lifetime within the last decade in our culture. If you don't know what I'm talking about, they are the central premise of the book, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. A cultural phenomenon in the movies as well, all based around this idea there are these secret gospels the Catholic Church doesn't want you to know about because it threatens to destroy the entire illusion built by Christianity. And everyone goes, oh, secret, they don't want you to know about them. When in reality, these things have been known about from the day they were written, and they've been exposed as forgeries from the day they were written. And when I say exposed as forgeries, I don't even mean by just the church. Historians today confirm and affirm the fact that all these other gospels were not written by the people who claim to have written them and were written by frauds. But it keeps coming around every generation and I guarantee, I guarantee within the next 20 years that rumor will come around again and you'll have people being like, did you know this? And the memes will be floating around the internet, whatever the the version of a meme is 20 years from, I don't know. So it'll be floating around in front of your face in your magic glasses or something like that. So these things keep coming around again and again and again. Well, there's something called the Moratorian Canon that was written about 10 years before Irenaeus wrote Against Heresies. The Moratorian Canon, we know, dates to around 170 AD, and it's a list of books that were considered to be part of the canon of Scripture by the early church. And in that, it mentions there are only four Gospels that the church considered to be legit. And it mentions Luke and John as two of them by name. Even earlier, the church father Papias in AD 130 wrote a book, super catchy title, Expositions of the Oracles of the Lord. That sounds like a death metal band to me, but it's, it's a great name. Expositions of the Oracles of the Lord. And we don't actually have any copies of that, but it is quoted by other authors, including Eusebius. And it mentions Matthew and Mark as being authoritative gospels that were considered to be legit by the church. So while scholars don't debate this external evidence, some claim that there's details in the gospel texts that that point to other authors having written them. However, 
We've dealt with many of those things when we did our study through the Gospels. All you need to find is a, a decent Bible teacher and you'll find that these so-called issues are easily and logically explainable. All these ideas are, are nonsense from people who believe things like Moses didn't write the Torah, there were two Isaiahs, people who literally just wanna do everything they can to tear apart what the Bible text says even though all the evidence points in another direction. So while scholars may debate the exact authors of each gospel, the evidence externally, historically, and within the text itself points to these facts. Matthew and John record the eyewitness accounts of Matthew and John. Mark was written by an associate of Peter's to record Peter's eyewitness account. Luke was written by Luke as a historical biography of the life of Jesus. So make a note of this. It means in reality that three of the four gospels are direct eyewitness accounts and the fourth is compiled from the eyewitness accounts of others. They're direct eyewitness accounts. Here's what's remarkable to me about the naming of the gospels by the early church. Because when those guys wrote their gospels, John didn't write this and then title it the gospel of John. He didn't do that. The early church gave it that name. John was just writing, this is what the Holy Spirit has told me to share with you about my time with Jesus. The early church gave them the names that they did. And they could have easily exaggerated to give the gospels more cachet, more prestige, more respectability. For example, the gospel of Mark would have been really easy to justify a little exaggeration to call it the gospel of Peter. That certainly would have sounded better. You're using the name of one of the original 12 disciples, one of the three most important and closest disciples to Jesus. But they didn't do that. They could have renamed Luke's gospel to call it something else, but they didn't do that. Because from the very beginning, Irenaeus, Papias, and the like chose the path of integrity. They were interested in truth. And so they named the gospels based on who they knew were the actual authors of those gospels. Which is even more remarkable because the Gnostics and the frauds were using the strategy of false names to give their fake gospels more credibility. But the early church wouldn't do it. They stood committed to truth and over the centuries their commitment has stood the test of time and has endured. So we can trust the accuracy of the critical gospel texts we use today. We can trust the authorship of the gospels. When were the gospels written? Unfortunately, they didn't all come with dated title pages, which has resulted in some disagreement among scholars as to when they were each written, which means we have to go back to clues in history outside of the gospel texts as well as the contents of the texts as well. For example, all four gospels identify Pontius Pilate as the Roman governor of Judea during the time of Jesus. Secular history knows that Pilate governed from about 26 to 37 AD. So here's what we know, the gospels couldn't have been written before that time. Now we need to figure out the latest possible dates the Gospels could have been written, and then we'll have a, a window of time for dating purposes. To do that, we'll start by looking at the evidence outside the Gospels. As we mentioned earlier, the oldest manuscript fragment we have is P52, that piece of the Gospel of John that dates to around AD 125. We know that's a copy, which means the original must have been written earlier, and that allows us to say with certainty that John's gospel was written no later 
than the first part of the second century. Also, as we mentioned earlier, it's around 180 AD when Irenaeus specifically mentions Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as being the only authoritative gospels. In his writing, when he describes when those were written, Irenaeus dates all four gospels to having been written in the back half of the first century, somewhere between 50 and 100 AD. The Moratorian Canon, we talked about that was written 10 years before Irenaeus's Against Heresy and mentions Luke and John by name probably mentions Matthew and Mark as well, and also dates them to the first century. 50 years before that, Papias wrote about the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, giving us a reliable latest possible date for those two Gospels of before AD 30. Papias wrote about them in AD 30, so we know they existed before AD 30. And Papias in his writing as well also says those gospels were written in the back half of the first century AD. There are no earlier references to the biblical gospels, but there are possible quotations from the gospels in Christian writings that date to the first decade of the second century. Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, while he was on his way to Rome to be martyred, wrote several letters in which he seems to have quoted from Matthew, and he does that around 105 AD. Around that same time, there's a document called the Didache which shows possible knowledge of Matthew. And if the passages written by Ignatius and the Didache are indeed quotations from Matthew and not just oral tradition, then we have external evidence that Matthew was written no later than 110 AD. Next week, we're gonna talk more about the most compelling questions around the Gospels, which is the fact that Matthew and Luke seem to use Mark as a source for their writing. There are things in Matthew and Luke that seem to be pulled from the Gospel of Mark. If this is true, it means that Mark must have been written before either of those Gospels and early enough to be known by those other Gospel authors. And this is where it gets really fascinating because that pushes the writing of Mark to near the middle of the first century AD. And suddenly the time gap between the ministry of Jesus and the writing of these books is getting incredibly, incredibly small. When it comes to evidence that we can use to date the Gospels that's found in the Gospels themselves, internal evidence, there's a huge amount of debate among scholars. I shared the example of Pontius Pilate that lets us know the Gospels had to be written after a certain date, but using the Gospel texts to come up with a date that they must have been written before is much more difficult, and I'll just share this with you. You'll hear a lot of debate in this area about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So there's a lot of Bible scholars who will say this was the biggest event around Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It was essentially the greatest tragedy that had ever happened in the history of Israel. Surely the Gospels would have said something about that if they were written after that time. So there's some scholars who will say they all must have been written before 70 AD, otherwise they would have mentioned something about the destruction of Jerusalem. All I'm gonna say is that I disagree with that approach entirely. Number one, they do say something about the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus prophesies that exact destruction of Jerusalem. But secondly, the purpose of the Gospels is just that, the Gospel. Their purpose is not to document the political history of the nation of Israel. 
Now, I personally hold to a later dating of the Gospel of John, and I have no problem with the fact that John doesn't talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, because in his Gospel, John himself tells us the purpose, the reason he wrote that Gospel. I'm just going to read it to you. He says this at the end of his book, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John says right there, the reason I wrote this gospel is so that you would believe in Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life. The purpose of the gospels was not to document the political history of Israel. So I would just throw that entire idea that it's significant to date the gospels using the fall of Jerusalem. I'd throw that idea completely out the window. I know that was deeply troubling all of you, so I'm so glad I could put that to rest for you. You'll sleep so much better now. The bottom line is that if you were to do a survey of all the New Testament scholars today, all the books that have been written about it, you would find the majority of scholars falling somewhere in the following date range for the Gospels. And I put it on your outline. Matthew is written somewhere between 65 and 85 AD. Mark was written earlier somewhere between 60 and 75 AD. It was the first Gospel written. Luke was written somewhere between 65 and 95 AD. And then John was the last Gospel to be written somewhere between 75 and 100 AD. If these accepted date ranges are accurate, then the biblical gospels were written around 30 to 70 years after the death of Jesus. Which may leave you wondering, is that good or bad? I don't actually know how to react, Jeff. And to get the answer to that question, I promise we're almost done, we need to look at two issues. The first issue that we'll look at in just one second is how the dating of the four gospels compares to the dating of other Gospels, these Gnostic Gospels, these non-biblical Gospels. I'm going to begin using the words extra-biblical and non-canonical. I put this on your outline. All that means is that they're not part of the Bible. They're not part of the canon of Scripture. They are outside of the canon of Scripture. So when I talk about extra-biblical or non-canonical Gospels, I'm talking about those fraudulent Gospels that are not part of the Bible. The second issue that we're going to look at next week is understanding how the gospel writers got their information about Jesus. This is the last thing we're going to hit today. Let's compare the dating of the four gospels to all the other extra-biblical, non-canonical gospels, these so-called Gnostic gospels. Now, these Gnostic gospels rely on the four true gospels for all their ideas. So they take contents from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, twist them, distort them, make them say things that aren't true to try and get their message across. Most scholars date the non-canonical gospels to be the second century AD. That's when they were written. Or later, with one possibly being composed in the early third century. Now generally, the closer a historical account is to the actual event, the more confidence we have in it. I don't know that you've noticed this in your own life. The further you get from an event, the more fuzzy the details have. A great example is remembering raising your children when they were babies. You remember that as a completely happy time. You see, that's because time has altered the accuracy of your memory and the grace of the Lord has probably been at work somewhere in there as well. Therefore, we can conclude 
that the biblical gospels are far more trustworthy as historical sources for Jesus than the non-canonical gospels because all serious textual critics acknowledge that the four gospels we have in our Bible were written well before all the non-canonical and extra-biblical gospels were. So you've got two sources, the gospels in the Bible, the gospels that are not in the Bible. When the gospels that are not in the Bible completely contradict the ones that are in the Bible, which one do you believe? The one that's significantly closer to the actual events. That's the way all historians treat and deal with information. And we can do the same thing. So write this down. Because we know that the four biblical gospels were written before the non-canonical gospels, we know that they can be considered more reliable. More reliable. You don't have to worry if someone says, what about all the gospels that aren't in the Bible? You can be like, well, Historians have exposed those as frauds, and they were written well after the Gospels that are in the Bible today. But as I noted earlier, the writing of the biblical Gospels did happen two to three generations after the ministry and life of Jesus. This time gap makes us wonder what the Gospel writers depended on when they wrote. Were they relying on memory? Were they relying on written descriptions, on hearsay? What happened with stories about Jesus during the years after his ministry and before the writing of the Gospels? We're gonna tackle those questions in next week's message. So here's what I wanna encourage you to do. Take the notes that we have at some point this week and just try pull out three points that you can write out in your own word. One sentence, two sentences each, in your own words, three points, three reasons you would give to someone who says, why should I believe what the Bible says? Why should I believe what's in there is accurate? Just choose three things, because when a person asks you that question, they're not expecting you to do what I've just done here. They're just assuming that you're gonna say, well, I I don't know, I guess you're right, all my belief is a lie. That's what they're expecting is going to happen. If you will just respond with three sentences, well, well, there's three things. Number one, the number of copies we have of the gospel text today is about 20 times greater than all other historical sources that are considered reliable. And if you throw out the copies that we have of the Bible, you would have to ignore and throw out basically everything we know about ancient history because there are so many more sources for what's in the Bible. You can share that, hey, those manuscripts too are hundreds of years closer to the events that they talk about, then the sources that we use for guys like Herodotus and Thucydides, who are beloved by classical scholars and relied upon for our knowledge of basic history. That's two things, find yourself a third and just be able to share those things and your apologetic skill will jump up significantly. The whole goal is, the second you say Thucydides, they're gonna be like, oh man, I shouldn't have asked this question. (laughs) Thucydides, right? Took me five minutes to learn that, but it was totally worth it for that moment. I would say for the whole series we're gonna do, we're gonna spend probably about three weeks on this. My whole goal is that you would have and write down for yourself just five things, five one-sentence reasons you can trust what the gospels say about Jesus. That's it, because you can remember three to five things, three to five things to be able to answer that question. In conclusion, we've shown why we can have confidence that the gospel texts we use today are accurate renditions of the originals. 
We've shown that we can trust the authorship of the Gospels. They really were written based on the accounts of the men they claim to represent. We've shown that we can know when the Gospels were written. And historically speaking, it's very, very close to the life and ministry of Jesus. And we've shown why we should trust that the four Gospels we have in our Bibles today are the authentic, reliable Gospels used by the early church and why we can ignore the two or three dozen other so-called Gospels that are out there. Next week, we're gonna get into the sources that the Gospel writers used when they wrote. Where did they get their information from? And I hope you'll come out for that. With that, let's bow our head and close our eyes. Let's pray together. Let me pray for, for all of us. Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to the earth and, and telling us about what he did through your word. And thank you that you have arranged a wealth of evidence so that those who say, show me the evidence, can find it if they wanna look sincerely. Thank you, Lord, that, that we don't need to be scared of questions about our faith or why we believe what we believe. We know the reality of what you've done in our lives, but thank you that there's also external archaeological, historical, tangible evidence that what the Gospels say is true. Jesus, thank you for sharing that information with us. And thank you that you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. Just stay in this, in this attitude of stillness before the Lord and there's nothing you need to do with today's message as far as personal examination. So would you just, just open your heart to the Lord right now and, and the time we're going to have is a wonderful time just to praise him and thank him for what he's done for you, for, for going to the cross for you. There's communion available in the back. I encourage you to take that and, and think about the cross and, and just rejoice in the fact that your sins are forgiven and you belong to Jesus. And then as always, we encourage you to spend some time just in reflection. Give the Lord a chance to speak to you. Ask him if there's anything in your life that, that he wants to change, a work that he wants to do. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.